Um, I've always felt that the most difficult day on the Jewish calendar is a day that's going to be commemorated by many Jews throughout the world, but just by a show of hands, how many of you guys grew up observing Tisha B'Av? Okay, it's about half, half the room, okay? It's not a terribly well-known day on the Jewish calendar, Um, and I feel it's one of the most difficult days of the year on the calendar, not only because we fast and we mourn, and it's like not a fun time for the Jews, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, uh, but because we're mourning the destruction of an institution of Jewish life that no one here really ever experienced. Anybody been to the temple? No. Maybe you've been to Israel, maybe you've been to the Kotel. It's a trick question. Like, yeah. Now, it's, it's, it's uh, actually real stories about... Um, there's a true story about a girl from Ethiopia who, when she emigrated to Israel and she went to the Kotel, she started to cry when she found out that she was just visiting the last remaining wall, a remnant of the actual temple. She still thought the temple stood. Where she lived, she had no idea that the temple was ever destroyed. Um, And she wasn't alone. There were many uh, Ethiopians pretty much kept from a lot of the rest of the Jewish community that were just unaware of a lot of Jewish history. But it's a difficult thing to ask somebody to mourn um, the destruction of an institution in Jewish life that we never experienced. So that's my goal tonight, is to try to give us a little of a feel of what it is that we're so upset about. Famous story of um, 67, uh, Jewish people reunify, liberate the uh, old city of Jerusalem, they get to the Kotel, and a lot of the religious soldiers are crying at the wall. And there was one soldier who was not, did not come from a religious family, was not raised in observance, and he was also crying. And his friend, his comrade in arms, said, why are you crying? You know, for me, this wall represented this temple that stood for our people where sacrifices and offerings were brought, where the Jewish people came to, you know, basically worship God. You know, that's meaningful to a religious person. Why are you crying? And he said, because I'm crying because I see everybody else crying. Everybody's upset about something, and I'm upset that I'm not upset. And I used to do that when I was a kid on Tisha B'Av, because I used to go to one of these camps where they, they went a little crazy on the night of Tisha B'Av. They turned out all the lights in the camp. They lined us up behind our counselors with a roll of toilet paper. Don't ask me why they used a roll of toilet paper. They put it on a plunger. It looked a little silly. Doused it in kerosene, and then they would light it aflame. And everybody would walk quietly to the Merkazi. I was about a thousand campers in this Jewish camp, my Camp Marashah. Very proud of it. Went there for ten years. And we got to the Merkazi, and it was dark. There were no chairs. There were no benches out. And you had to use your flashlight, and you sat on the floor. And everybody was just crying and upset. And I was like, why am I upset? So they told us, think about something that upsets you. So I remember my grandfather was sick at the time. So I thought about my grandfather. He wasn't doing so well. I cried. Why are we crying? Especially today. Because when you go to Israel, and many of you are coming to Israel with us very soon, what do you see when you see in Israel? A lot of rebirth, a lot of excitement, a lot of joy, and a lot of happiness. Especially in Jerusalem, the city that we are going to be saying in our prayers is laying in ruins. Like a widowed person, like a, like a woman that was cast to the side... That's the way the prophets speak about Jerusalem in the aftermath of the temple's destruction. What are we still mourning? I mean, for God's sake, we have Israel, we have a reunified Jerusalem, we have a strong IDF, there's anti-Semitism in the world, of course, and there's still terrorism in Israel, unfortunately. But come on, we've come back. Isn't the exile over? So first of all, let's figure out what, what, what technically are we mourning? What, what are we mourning, actually, technically? Just throw it out there. What? Destructions, Destructions of what? When, when did these temples stand? Let's get some facts. Fill in the facts. Um, 
Okay, the, fr- the first temple stood even longer, you know, almost 3,000. Okay, it, was, it, it stood, who built the first temple? Solomon. Solomon built the first temple. It stood for approximately 410 years. It was destroyed then by the Babylonians. The Babylonians. Uh, the head of the Babylonian Empire was Nebuchadnezzar, 586 B.C. Don't worry, no one's testing you on the, on the, uh, the numbers here. The prophet Jeremiah describes in detail how the Jews were, uh, many Jews were killed and then driven from their homeland. And any know, anybody know how long did that exile last? How long were the Jews basically kicked out of Israel after the Babylonians destroyed the first temple, 586 BCE? Was it a long exile? Short exile? 70. 70 in Jewish history is tiny. Okay? Um, where did most of the Jews go that survived the destruction of the first temple by the Babylonians? Where did they go physically? Where did they move to? They lived to Babylon, which was the, you know, it was like an ancient superpower. Persia. Uh, Persia, modern-day Iraq, I would say. That's kind of the part of the world where most Jews lived. What story are we all familiar with that took place pretty shortly thereafter? No. I'm glad you suggested that. It's not Hanukkah, it's Purim, because who toppled the Babylonian Empire? A little world history for you here. Who toppled the Babylonian Empire? Who came after the Persians? Okay, so therefore, and the Persians, I mean, massive. Just think of the United States. You're like, well, you got all these states, so think about the former Soviet Union. Massive empire. The Babylonian Empire was bigger. The Persian Empire had 127 provinces. It says it in the Megillah, which is basically from India to Ethiopia. Can anyone visualize India to Ethiopia? You play risk, think about the risk board. Where is that, right? It's big. Jews were all, right? And then, what happened that we came back and we rebuilt our temple? Who let us come back to Israel? We believe it was God, but who are the people that were running the show? It was Cyrus the Great. It was Darius Cyrus. I'm actually postulate that Darius was the son of Queen Esther, who was the queen to Achashverosh in the Purim story, which would make a lot of sense why he would allow the Jews to come back. He was a nice Jewish boy. Or it was Cyrus the Great, according to most historians, let the Jews come back to Israel and rebuild the second temple. Very important. Did everybody go? Everyone left Persia? And went back to Israel. They got on the El Al flights. They just went. A lot of Jews went. Small amount of Jews. Small. Approximately 42,000. Minority of the Jews actually returned. So just because we have... Um, now we know this in modernity. Just because you have a government and a state and an army and a nice place to live. And it's no longer unsafe. Doesn't mean all the Jews leave America, France, Italy. You know? Okay. They go back to Israel, they build the second temple, and that's lasted for another like 420 years. So the first temple is 410 years, the second temple 420. It's almost the millennia of our temple. It's a long time. Who destroys the second temple? Right, the Romans. This exile? How long did that exile? Babylonian exile, 70 years. Roman exile? Still happening last time I checked. Unless you think Ben-Gurion was the Messiah. <laughs> uh, there's no temple. When you go to Jerusalem, where do you go? You pray at the wall. It's a holy place. Now, when you come with us, we're going to do something very strange when we go to the wall. We're going to actually rip our clothing. Aren't you excited? You're going on your birthright trip to go to the wall? Everyone's like, yeah, let's, there's dancing. The Israeli flags on Yisrael Chai. Why are you ripping your clothing? Because what's the wall really represent? Now, on one hand, in modernity, it represents kind of recapturing the old city and sovereignty and like Zionism, right? Some of the real anti-Zionists won't go to the wall. Okay, that's a separate discussion. But what does it really represent spiritually? It's a placeholder. That's exactly what it is. It's the fourth most outer wall that surrounded the ancient temple. We kind of lose that when we go there sometimes because we're so excited to be in what is the holiest place for a Jew to go. But it's, it's sad because it's like a nothing of what was. 
Now, what was that was so awesome that we can't wait to get it back? Because most of us think about a temple as just a place for animal sacrifice, and thank God that no longer exists. What really was the temple? What did it represent? And what is it we're still mourning? It's a famous story told of the great Napoleon, French conqueror, who walked into a synagogue on Tishabab. Probably not a good day to be a tourist in a synagogue. He walked in with his advisors. He sees the lights are dimmed. All the Jews are sitting on the floor crying. They're reading from the Book of Lamentations. He turns to one of his advisors and he says, What's going on? Why, why are they lamenting and mourning and crying? And one of the advisors says that they are mourning the destruction of their temple. Napoleon says, destruction of the temple, when, when did that happen? And the advisor says, eh, about 1,800 years ago. And he's quoted, and this, I have no idea if this is true or not, but it's attributed to Napoleon. He's quoted to have said that anyone who mourns for something so hard for so long will surely merit to see it rebuilt. Now there's a very famous line in the Talmud we're going to end our class with it tonight, but I'm going to tell it to you now. Anyone who mourns the temple destruction will merit to see its rebuilding. What does that really mean? What are we mourning? What, we can't build another temple? We've got some pretty good Jewish architects, and now we have some pretty amazing real estate. Okay, there's a big mosque where it once was. We'll have to deal with that detail. Okay? But why don't we just create a temple somewhere else? Um... And this is a very important question because, and just let's throw this out, what other things do we do during the course of the year to mourn the destruction of the temple? Besides Tishabov, besides the day of Tishabov in a few weeks. What, what are things that we do? Or things that we don't do? Because this is a constant. Do you know that there are people in Jerusalem, I once went to a wedding, uh, you know, some of you know I obsess about the drums and when I was in yeshiva, my rabbi came over to me and he said, uh, the number one drummer from Tel Aviv is, perform- is playing at a wedding. If you want, you can come to the wedding and you can watch the drummer. I was, and I used to do that. I used to just go to weddings and watch good drummers. For, and whatever, you don't have to be invited. It's Israel. You just go and show up. They even gave me a plate of chicken. I remember I sat on a... I watched this guy for three hours and I was expecting a band. But guess who was the band at the wedding? Just the drummer. He was a percussionist. The guy was good. And uh, a singer. They had no musical instruments. No guitar, no keyboard, no brass, nothing. So this guy works. This guy earns his, his keep for the night. Why wasn't there any music? Because some people believe that since the temple was destroyed, you're not allowed to have live music anywhere in Jerusalem. Now, most Jews observe that for what period of time? Right? The three weeks or the nine days, which just started now. Some people do it all year. What else do we do? When you're at a wedding, how do you conclude? You smash the glass. Why are you smashing the glass? Smashing the glass, by the way, is not a fun thing. Talmud gives two reasons for doing that, but one of the reasons that's, that's, that's offered is to remember that even at the greatest moment of, of joy and happiness, remember that there's something missing in this world. And what's that? The temple. What was in the temple that was so important, that was so significant? Again, what is missing in our lives? And this is really what is so difficult about Tisha B'Av. It's not the fasting. It's not the fact that we're not supposed to say hello to each other on this day. It's the fact that we have to somehow feel something that's missing that we don't really feel it's missing. Now that in and itself is a tragedy because we're numb to something that is absent from our lives. The only thing you can do is like, at least find out about it intellectually. And I'm going to tell you what it is intellectually and it's probably not going to do anything for you spiritually or emotionally. But through hearing about it and through observing it these next few weeks by dialing down on our joyous activities, the three weeks we, we don't have live musical concerts, we don't have, um, you know, um, we don't take haircuts, nine days, <clears throat> which starts, when does the nine days start? Um, uh, Rosh Chodesh Av is coming next up. Thursday. What's that? Next Thursday. next Thursday, that sounds right. Um, we're going to start. Um, the custom, the tradition is not to... Well, we'll talk about some of the things at the end. We, 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 we dial down the joy to try to feel a little something missing. What is it that's missing? 
So let's talk about the temple. Whose idea was it to build it? What's that? Um, was he? Oh, what began before the temple? That was the precursor for the permanent temple in Jerusalem. What was that called? The tabernacle. Whose idea was that? God. Okay, good. God commanded the Jews in the wilderness. It's not a trick question. But David's a good guess because he's the one who built the first. He actually didn't build the first. He was supposed to. Prophet says his hands were too filled with blood. It had to be, it had to be built by a person of peace. The temple represented peace and unity amongst the Jewish people. Solomon, there was never a moment in Jewish history there was more unity and peace in the Jewish community than there was in the days of Solomon. King David, his father, was a warrior. He was supposed to build the temple, but his hands were too filled with blood, so therefore he couldn't do it. But the, the, the God commands Moses in the wilderness, make for me a sanctuary. That's the whole class right there, guys. Make for me a sanctuary and I will dwell amongst them. What's wrong with the language? Make for me a sanctuary and I will dwell amongst them. It should be. I will dwell am- I will in it. In other words, make me a house and I'll move into the house. God needs a house? No. You make something, then I tell you, and I'll give you the exact specifications of how to bring my, phys- my spiritual presence into a physical world, and then I'll live amongst you. If you follow my specifications... You follow the orders, the commands as to how to build something spiritual in a physical world. I will cause my presence. What's the Hebrew word for God's presence? The Shekhinah. Now the Shekhinah is the lowest aspect of the divine that we as human beings can comprehend. If you study any Kabbalah in terms of God's name, the Yud and the He and the Vav and the He, that's God's Hebrew name. It's the lowest of the He. There's, you know, some, some of the Kabbalists will write out God's name, like sort of vertically. The Yud, and then the He, and the Vav, and the He. We're not really supposed to say it at once. It's Hashem's name. And when we are distant from God, we cause, we believe, the lower He to be cast away. That's called exile. Exile is not just a place. Oh, I'm going to see my cousin Perry tonight after class. He's coming to see me. He lives in Israel. He, right, and his cousin Mark, here, he lives in, I'm sorry, he lives in Israel and I live in exile. Okay, because he lives in Israel, my cousin. Now, there is a mitzvah to live in Israel, but exile is much more than a geographical place. Exile is a state of mind. Exile is when there's distance. Where God is not as connected to us as he should be. Or we are not as connected to Hashem as we should be. The temple, first the tabernacle, was that place on earth that we could be more connected to God, that we can actually feel Hashem more in the world. If you're not feeling a lot of God, you feel distant from God, and you feel He's so hidden, well, that's because you're in a world. The Hebrew word for world is olam, connected to the word he'olam, which means hidden. This world is the world the most hidden of God. Now, that's our job as the Jewish people, to reveal God. We were given a place to do that. Now, you can work out anywhere, right? You buy a couple of dumbbells and put a mat down and work out in your apartment. Why does everyone join gyms? Right? There are other people working out. There's better equipment, okay? And there's a certain environment that's conducive to pumping iron, to building your body, whatever it is you're trying to do in the gym. That was the temple in terms of spirituality. It was a place that God helped us develop that we could feel more of Hashem in the physical world. When we talk about temple destructions, you'll see on Tisha B'Av, not a lot of literature about the Babylonians and the Romans. So, so you know, Because we could sit and talk about anti-Semitism to a blue in the face. It always was and it always will be. What are we doing during these three weeks, nine days in Tisha B'Av? We're getting to the root cause. Because how could any sovereign human king topple God's home. God who splits seas and causes manna to fall from the heavens, who causes people to live and to die, the the Romans and the Babylonians. We understand that there's something much deeper. We always look inside. Those are just symptoms. What's really happening is that there's been a breakdown in our relationship with God, and God leaves his home. 
he takes off. He left his home, Temple One. But you know why? What was going on in the Jewish community that God said, I don't belong here on earth so much anymore? What was happening in the Jewish community? Again, we don't look out there. We look at our own community. What's happening? There was rampant idol worship going on in Temple One. Now, that's a hard thing for us moderns. Like, I always used to feel good about that when I was a kid. I was like, oh, I don't feel the urge to worship idols. I'm a pretty religious Jew. I'm good with that one. Big check. Okay, there was a tremendous taiva. There was a tremendous lust and desire to worship the physical. Um, now, interestingly, how long did that temple destruction last? How long did that exile go for? Well, now that's how long the temple. Only 70. Because what happened? We licked the, uh, the idol worship. Not so simple. There's a whole discussion in the Talmud. The rabbis prayed to God that God slay the Yetzirah, the, the, the evil inclination that all people have for Avodah Zarah, for idol worship. Um, so we needed a little help with that. Second temple? Why was that? Why did God... And by the way, and then Hashem came back. He gives us another chance. Came back into the temple. We built another one. It's just a building, guys. Beautiful building. Which, by the way, was more magnificent aesthetically, architecturally, physically. First or second? Right. Which was holier, actually? First was holier. First had the ark. The second did not have the ark. But both had, we believe, what's called in Hebrew, hashras, hashchina, the residing of God's presence in the physical world. Once God's presence takes off, it's just a building. Here's the metaphor I've always given for this. Two people fall in love. They want to symbolize their love for each other. So the man goes out and blows all of his hard-earned money on a little thing you could hardly see called a stone, <laughs> a diamond ring. And he presents it to his beloved. And she walks around and shows it to everyone. This is so beautiful. Look, this is so gorgeous. It's amazing. Wow. What happens if the trust is broken and the couple can no longer remain together? And I'm not saying if the trust is broken, the couple can no longer remain together. The couple decides not to stay together. What happens to the stone? What's it worth? It's worth what the market says it's worth. I'm not saying financially, monetarily, it's not worth anything. But it doesn't mean anything like it used to. That's what the temple was after the Jewish people pushed Hashem out of their lives. You know what it is when we, what's, what's the word we use when we, we pull God back into our lives? When we return back to Hashem. What's the Hebrew word? Tshuva. So the Kabbalists teach that the Yudke Vavke, Remember I said it was God's presence, the Shechina, which rested in the, in the temple. First in the tabernacle and then the temple. Is that we are, we send the hey, the last letter of God's Hebrew name. The part that's the most connected to us that we can relate to as human mortals. We send that away. We exile. We send God into Golos. Golos is exile. But when we do tshuva, what does the word tshuva mean? Look at the letters of the Hebrew word tshuva. It means shuv hey, return the hey. It's a returning of God's hey. And the Kabbalists speak about, I don't, I don't exactly understand this, but in, in a sense, God is, we're, we're, we're almost completing God. Now, God's perfect. He doesn't need completing. But insofar as our relationship with God and the very purpose of God creating us, we reinstate by coming back to God. We make his name whole again in the physical world. And that's the good news about Tisha B'Av. And I'll, I'll get to it in a second, but what's the second temple? Why did that get destroyed? What's that called in Hebrew? Let's get the Hebrew word. Sinat chinam. And what's chinam mean? Chinam means nothing. Hatred. Now, is there such a thing? Have you ever hated someone for no reason? There's always a reason. <laughs> We're still not supposed to do it, though. Now, there are reasons. Uh, we're a little different than our Christian counterparts when it comes to this. There are reasons to hate people. There is actually a mitzvah to hate evil. But that wasn't the issue. There weren't evil people in the Jewish community. People were hating each other because they were evil. They were hating each other for reasons that were not worthy of that word. 
of that very strong word. And that exile we're still suffering from. Somehow we haven't recovered from the Temple 2 destruction, which was caused and brought about through Sinat Chinam, through baseless hatred. That one we're still trying to crawl out from underneath. So that's why everyone always talks about what's the antidote, what's, what's, what's the solution to Sinat Chinam, to baseless hatred. They say it's Avas Chinam, which is just loving people. You know, and... and um, And this is hard. This is very, very difficult. And I, I, I think our society has taken a big step backwards. I'm not just talking about the Jewish world, just in general. We've, we've become less tolerant than ever of people's opposing opinions. We've forgotten how to love people with whom we disagree. And we're never going to get to a place. I don't even think that's the messianic-like vision of our prophets. Everybody will agree on everything. And now we can love everyone. Because we couldn't love everyone because we disagree with other people. And how could you love someone that you don't see eye to eye with? Well, we're supposed to still figure out a way of doing that. Unless it's evil. And the Torah tells us what that is. But this is something we still struggle with. And Tisha B'Av is a very relevant thing in 2023. It's still relevant. The Talmud says that any generation that does not see the temple rebuilt in its own time it's as though that generation had caused its destruction. It's a very harsh statement in the Talmud. You'd be like, dude, I didn't do anything wrong. What did I do that was wrong? Well, we didn't rebuild it. <laughs> we didn't create a generation worthy enough of the Messiah's arrival. So on some level, we're still responsible for its destruction. Because that's hard to hear. That's hard to say. But the good news, and what's the flip side of this? Tisha B'av is not just a day of lamenting and mourning and going, oi. It's a day of oi. What else is it a day of? If the whole reason for the temple's destruction is that we, we made ourselves unworthy of God's presence in the physical world and God, we cast him into exile and now we're exiled. right? And, and what the Babylonians and the Romans did is just a, a symptom of an underlying breakup of God and the Jewish people was a breakup in the rain. The temple is, me- is meaningless now. It was destroyed. What's the good news, though? We can only go back. That's right. We can only go up from here. And through our returning to Hashem, we can reinstate the relationship. It's not about the temple. It's about the relationship, which gets expressed physically in the temple, in the sacrifices and the offerings. In Jews coming from all, all over the world, Pesach, Sukkot, and Shavuot, in the judicial system, right? The real judicial system, not the one we're talking about in Israel now, with all the greatest respect to the Supreme Court in any country, in any democracy. But the real Sanhedrin that we've talked about all year will be reinstated. They sat and adjudicated law, Jewish law, in the temple. The temple was the centrality of everything Jewish. That all comes back when this comes back with our relationship with Hashem. So well, how do we spend the day of Tisha B'Av? It's not simply a day of Oyin. We do a lot of Oyin. There's literally Oyin going on on Tisha B'Av. But what else do we do on Tisha B'Av that shows it's not simply a day of lamenting and crying over, by the way, not just the destruction of the temples, but every anti-Semitic persecution, every pogrom, every <coughs> crusade, um, every moment in Jewish history where a Jew was killed or tortured or persecuted simply for being a Jew. What else do we do on this day of Tisha B'Av? We're fasting. Now, I have to pay a shiva call today. One of my dearest friends lost his wife. Um, I'd love to just say the rest of this Torah in her memory. Her name was Sarah. Uh, Rav Shmuel. Rav Shmuel. And... Um, Why don't I just bring that up? What did we just say a second ago? So there was a lot of food at the, at the Shiva call. And I was sitting with him and his mother came. We grew up together, so I remember this when he was a kid. He's my age. His mother came and said, you got to go into the other room and eat something. You've been sitting here talking to people all day. Mark, go in with him. And I went into the other room. We sat and I watched him eat. 
So why, why are we fasting on Tishbub? It's a day of lamenting. You ever see people fasting at a shiva? No, Jews don't know what to do other than to bring food. You ever see a shiva home? It's just like food. It's like a catering hall. Food, food, food. The whole time. Why are we fasting if it's a day of lamenting? Why do we fast? We don't fast. Are we, why, why do we fast on Yom Kippur? To get, how does fasting get you closer to God? How does it make you feel? I know what it makes me feel like. I get headaches. I get really aggravated. I'm short-tempered. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't count the hours down until it's over. What is fasting really intended to do? Okay. So, okay, good. So there's two aspects of fasting. One is very Yom Kippur, which, which is really about physicality. Because Yom Kippur is the day like we're supposed to be like angels. But I think there's a different element of, to fasting that's more pertinent philosophically on the day of Tisha B'Av, And that is, it makes us feel... What does it make you feel? You feel like you're lacking something. You're lacking, you're missing something. The biggest problem is we don't think we're missing anything. And this is a weird exercise. It's a spiritual exercise that the Jewish people are thrown into on this day of Tisha B'Av. Try to think what's missing. And how can I attribute what's missing to the gap in my relationship with Hashem? If I was only closer to God, I would have A, B, or C. If I only had more spirituality, Torah, mitzvahs in my life, I would be happier in this realm, in that realm, and so on and so forth. That's what we're trying to do. But that's tshuva. Fasting is the way Jews do tshuva. So Tisha B'Av is not just the day to say, oh my God, I can't believe so many Jews were killed, this crusade and that crusade. We read from the book of Keynotes. Keynotes are just like basically poems, but they're like dirges. And they're really interesting if you read them in the English. The Hebrew has to be really good to understand them. They're like Hebrew poetry written by some of the great Hebrew poets and rabbis and sages throughout the generations. And by the way, my, my daughter just asked me, she wanted to know like, who was the last one that wrote a Keynotes? And I said, I don't know, like 40 years ago, I think it was Rav Schwab, a great rabbi in the German-Jewish community who wrote a kina about the Holocaust. We say a kina about the Holocaust. You know that after the Shoah, there was a big controversy. Should there be a separate day to commemorate the Holocaust? Because we already have a day to commemorate all Jewish tragedy and suffering, and that day is, of course, Tisha B'Av. Why should the Shoah get a separate day? The Chalmanitsky pogroms didn't. There were tens of thousands of Jews killed in those pogroms. They don't get a day? What about the first crusade? The second crusade? What about when they burned folios of Talmud uh, in, 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 in Paris? Why is a catch-all day? But it's not a day to simply be upset. It's also a day to think, how can we get back on our feet? How can I, in my own life, because we only can start with ourselves, how can I personally get closer to Hashem, bring God more into my life, and influence my inner circle, at least, to do the same? And bring all of us back to a time where there was this intimacy. And then we get the ring back, because we got the relationship back. Now, that doesn't mean, this is why it's complicated, it doesn't mean we don't have any relationship with God, it doesn't mean that God's completely gone, but it's much more muted now than it ever was. And I think the spiritually sensitive amongst us feel that. I think you can tap into that. I think anyone in this room, any one of us, can tap into a kind of world we live in which has just so become so material, so physical, it's gotten so away from who we really are as souls, being connected to our spiritual source. That's a day to reflect on that and to think how we can rectify the last cause of this most recent temple, and that is sinat chinam, a baseless hatred. What can we do to create more love in the community, more respect, more achdus, more unity? The temple represented the ultimate unity between one Jew and the next. And there's a lot, we're scattered all over the place. And there was a time when we were really, really connected, bless you, to each other. And that's essentially what we're trying to commemorate, which is why, if you look at every single one of, you know, and, and, and by the way, stay focused a little on the brighter, flip brighter side. 
if the destruction occurred because of a breakdown in our relationships, then presumably if the relationships are reinstated, so will the temple. Okay? And this, in fact, was one of the purposes of Tishabav. Tishabav is referred to as a moed. You ever hear chol ha-moed? What's a moed? A moed is a set time. So on one hand, it's a set time for tragedy, but it's also a set time. What else is supposed to happen on Tishabav? The Messiah is supposed to reveal itself on the day of, of Tishabav. Okay, anybody know who the, what the Hebrew name? We, we even know who his name is, what his name is. And I didn't make it up. It happens to be my Hebrew name, but I don't have a Messiah complex. And it happens to be my birthday on Tishabav this year, but whatever. I probably will not reveal myself as the Messiah. Just, you know, a local friendly MGE rabbi. Um, his name is Menachem. Because what does the word Menachem mean? It means to comfort. And I always think about that when I have to pay a shiva call. Menachem Lenachem, you say Nichum Avelim, is to comfort. Because the Mashiach is a person that's supposed to come at a time when the, the, the relationship has been reinstated. And the, the, the and Mashiach is not reinstating the relationship. That's us to do. Mashiach is coming along and saying, okay, it's time to get up. You can sit up now, get off the shiva chair, put on a nice auto clothing. We're going back to Jerusalem. We're going back to that relationship we once had. Now, I get it. I just want to keep acknowledging it. It sounds so romantic and beautiful. But what relationship? I never had that relationship. So it's like, but we just have to do the best we can to imagine something more spiritually in our lives, personally, and in the world around us. Now, we get glimpses of it. And if you come to Israel with us, you'll get some big glimpses of it. Because when you're in holy places, you feel you're in the presence of a holy person. Well, you study some Torah that really feels connected. You get like a little glimpse. Imagine being in that place all the time. Imagine that was the default. And not the physical that we've got. And once in a while we get a little, ooh, yeah, that was good. Imagine that's the default. That's what once was. And I know it's hard to imagine it because we think about the temple and all these rituals and we're actually going to go in the old city they have a um, some of it's a little lame but most of it's really good um, of like where they rebuilt some of the vessels from the temple and you could actually see what they look like you know what they would have looked like you know but the rabbis in the Talmud say that you know anyone who hasn't seen like the, the grandeur of the temple they weren't just talking about the it, physically it was supposed to be incredible but it was this like unbelievable. You had a whole tribe of Jews, Levium, singing, playing instruments, and it was it would and, and and everybody was there. It wasn't just like the priests. Everybody came Pesach, Sukkot, Shavuot. The families. It was just like a. It was a celebration of Judaism, on the highest, highest spiritual levels. And um, it's something we believe we can bring back. And Tisha B'Av is the day for us to try our hand at doing just that, trying to reinstate and bring back this relationship of old. Yeah, along with that, by the way, comes peace. <laughs> right, no more fighting between, you know. So we have sovereignty. I can't really call it peace. Uh, we have some peace with some of our Arab neighbors. And, and I do believe that the more we settle Israel, uh, support people like Jeremy Gimple who just came here, spoke here this past Shabbat. We're going to visit his, his farms and his farm in Israel and, and do what we can to just bring the community up and not get sucked down by all the cynicism and anti-God feel that's in the world. There's such an anti-God feel today. And I, I, don't, I don't even want to talk about where it is, where it's coming from. It's Maybe it's some of it's justified, maybe some of it's not justified. Whatever it is, it's just... We're here for a reason. We're here because of a reason. And the opportunity that Tisha B'Av affords us to be a little more connected to that and to do our part to reinstate that special relationship that we have with Hashem. So um, one of the greatest books, it's the only book actually that my rabbi, of blessed memory, Rabbi Joseph Grimblatt uh, wrote. It's a little out of print. I just got another one. Um, you can check it out online. You might be able to get one, uh, actually. It's called Exile and Redemption. It's got 21 chapters. 
21 chapters because there's 21 days in the three-week period leading up to Tisha B'Av. It was meant for like a chapter a day. And it's basically an intellectual um, analysis of Jewish history, exile, and redemption. Because our nation has been through either one or the other. We're either in exile or redemption. Um, and it's interesting, you know, Matt and I were learning this a little before. We, we, we've spoken tonight a lot about, about, about sort of being kicked out of Israel. But what's fascinating is we actually started our nation in exile. Where did the Jews actually start as a people? Uh, well, so you could point to there, even before Harsinai, we were in Egypt. And even before Egypt, you know, we started with Abraham and Sarah, Rebecca, you know, and so we actually started outside of Israel. Now, Rabbi Grimblad argues that that's because that's helped formed us into the nation that was worthy of standing at Sinai. Because we've been through slavery, we've been through the moral, technological, you know, countries that, you know, built the pyramids but didn't have the morals and the values, ancient Egypt. So, and that sort of helped develop us into a country, into a nation that was worthy of standing at Sinai and getting this Torah and then ultimately living that Torah in Israel around this temple. That's sort of like, you know, the ideal. And we're trying to bring the world back to that place. Any comments or questions? I've been babbling for a long time. Jordan. Yeah, so there are some places where it indicate that, like, Moshiach and the third temple will be built by a certain time. Yeah. Like, thousands of years. So, do we ignore that when we're... The most famous prediction is 6,000 years. We're in five... What are we, five, seven, eight, three now? So do we ignore this when we're praying for an come, or do we not expect that we Okay, so we're not getting into a whole discussion about the Mashiach. There are two ways the Messiah can come. And I used to say, we can do this the easy way, or we can do this the hard way. The easy way is we bring it through our tshuva, our returning to God. And that's the ideal. According to uh, Jewish tradition and some of the great medieval Jewish philosophers, Sajagon among them said, there's a thing called kates based on the Talmudic tradition, that there'll be a certain date by which God waited for us to do that and said, I'm done waiting. And then he creates a certain scenario which forces the Jewish people to choose a path of God or not a path of God. And those who choose the path of God get redeemed and those who don't, do not. That's not the you know, preferred option. <laughs> That's not the preferred option. That's called Kate's. That's called the, you know, the end of days. That's sort of the apocalyptic kind of stuff that some, sometimes gets, you know, I'm not saying everything you've heard apocalyptically, you know, is from the Hebrew scripture. Some of that's probably Christianity. But we do have, you know, certain things that the Torah speaks about at the end of days, which are not so wonderful. And that, the rabbis teach, will happen at, at a certain date you know, if the Jewish people do not return on their own. What that date is, we don't have a surety, but uh, the most famous prediction is the year 6,000. Right, so do you believe that the temple will be built before then, with them? Or no. After? The temple could be rebuilt tomorrow. So they're, not, they're not linked, necessarily. They're not linked. It's just, it's option A or B. If we exercise option A, option B is no longer, you know, a choice. You know, it's it's... So the goal is option A. Well, then why not build a temple in the hopes that a physical <laughs> structure will promote? Because then it's just a physical structure. So what we try to do is, I mean, I think the the um, the feel of your question, of your suggestion, is is on point. We should do everything we can to promote. You know, encouraging people to do that, but by creating something that's not that. I don't think I don't know if that is helpful. We need to know what that thing really is. That's the end all and be all. That's like the indication that the Mashiach has come. Maimonides writes this: that if there's a person, like what's the criteria for the Messianic, you know, for this personality, the Mashiach, someone who's able to unite the Jewish people, uh, reinforces the breaches of Jewish observance, someone who's infused with Torah himself, and then brings all the Jewish people back to Israel and then reinstates the temple. Then you know for sure he's the Messiah. So you can't do the for sure thing when it's not. But, you know, the crux of what you're saying, I think, is very well taken, which is that we should do what we can to be positively promoted and, and creating environments that are conducive. 
I mean, what we're doing right now, learning about this, is conducive to that. Going to Israel is conducive to that. Any mitzvah that we do gets us closer to Hashem. is conducive to that. Yeah, Rebecca. There are, I don't know much about it, but I, I know that there's groups of people who do not want a third temple. Jewish people who don't want a third temple. What's the argument who? No, I've just heard like that there's like skepticism about starting to sacrifice again and like starting to like live in these ways that seem right. like when you read the Torah, you read like, oh, well, that's what we did in, in temple times. Like we find that that was, and the sort of justification for that is like, but that's what everyone was doing at the so, time, so it's very normal. But like, if we start sacrificing that, like, it, let's say there was a third temple tomorrow, right. like, we start sacrificing that, the rest of the world's going to look at us and be like, "Who are these crazy Jews?" And like, what are they doing? Or you well, know, it won't. It will not have been the first time, and it probably won't be the last. Um, there is a debate as to whether or not the third temple will have animal sacrifice. There are some opinions, the more minority opinions, but there are some great rabbinic opinions that believe. There will not no longer be animal sacrifice. Not because it was immoral previously. Uh, you know, our definition of morality, and I know this is difficult because, and, and, and it's very hard to, for me to wrap my modern mind around animal sacrifice too. But anything that God permits or certainly commands cannot be deemed immoral if your sense of morality is coming from from God. If you're a humanist and you believe in morality from 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 us. Then I, you know, then obviously we can deem something God commands or allows as immoral. So we can't. But but for whatever reason, according to some, that will that will, that will no longer be necessary. The animal sacrifice. There will be burning of incense and other types of things happening in the temple, but no more animal sacrifice. But according to other opinions, there will be animal sacrifice. How will that jive with the rest of the world? I have no idea. How will the fact that all of the Jewish people? You know, I understand it's a very real question. Yeah, I mean, you could go to another planet where, like Garden of Eden, which was not another planet, it's just a long time ago, when animals were not eaten for food. I mean, that's a good point. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, you have a question. Um, it, like, the physical structure yeah. has lost, like, all of its meaning because we don't really feel God's presence anymore. Um, is the hotel actually holy, or is it just yeah. like a representative? It, it is considered holy, and there's a passage in the Talmud that speaks about the hotel, about the wall, that it has some vestiges of holiness. Not because of the temple per se, but because of, well, its connection to the temple, but Jerusalem. So there's a debate and discussion in the temple that once God resided in Jerusalem, does God spiritual essence completely dissipate once the temple is destroyed and he leaves. It's not that clear, right? Um, the, temp, the God's spiritual essence is an aspect that still remains, still there. And the rabbis talk about the Kotel as a place where those kind of sparks could be experienced. Uh, because does Jerusalem have any more? Why is Jerusalem considered more of a holy city than any other place? Why is it considered more holy than, let's say, Tel Aviv? Tel Aviv's in Israel, too. Because that's where the temple was, and it was also the place where, I don't have the time for this, but tons of Jewish history took place. The binding of Isaac took place, and all of the prayers that were instituted by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they all prayed on that mountain. That mountain is an incredibly important mountain, the Temple Mount, uh, in you know, Jewish, biblical, biblically. Yeah, Jordan. This is a heavy question. Maybe this would be a unlike all the others. Yeah. yeah no. um, so I had to struggle. I actually was the first member to go to Shema. Like it was here. It was great. Well, it was great. It was so much fun. It was very, well, it was very, it was very yeah. emotional. My issue was then, and still today, we we sit through all the things we talk about. All the you know, right? We talk about all these things. How do we rationalize this like consistent pattern of the Jews like getting slaughtered or killed or you know? Genocide, so on and so forth. Because we say, like, okay, um, something what we do is that we kind of understand, okay, it goes back, you know, your people always kind of, they'll always, be, uh, um, they'll always be like enemies of the Jewish people, will always go through issues, and almost implies that we'll go through something again soon, potentially, you know, hypothetically. And we're going through it all the time. How do, we, how yeah. do we reconcile that? I have no idea. I have no idea. <laughs> okay. 
It's a very good, it's, you know, you're asking me to explain why Jews suffer so much. You know, somebody once said, you know, I don't know, it was like a Seinfeld or something, like the chosen people, you know, I'm going to choose somebody else. You know, like, we've been through so much persecution. It's, it's just crazy. And the more of a student of Jewish history you are, uh, it becomes more and more difficult to, I love Europe. But as I studied more and more Jewish history, it became more and more difficult to actually enjoy myself in Europe. When, you know, if you go to Portugal, this is what happened, this is where this thing happened. If you go to Spain, this thing happened over here. If you go to Germany, we go to, like, literally, Germany is just more recent. But there's, you know, and this, this is Europe. I mean, it's just all over the world. I, I, I have no idea. I mean, the only thing Rabbi Grimblatt mentioned earlier, that, that, you know, we do have some traditions, you know, that Egypt, why do we have to start out as a nation enslaved for so long? So he, he mentions here, he quotes a passage in the Talmud that Egypt was sort of the cauldron through which the Jewish people went through in order to be formed in a certain kind of way. It developed us. Rabbi Salvechik taught, why is the Jew at the forefront of every human rights and civil rights movement? Where is the bleeding heart liberal Jew? Where did that come from? I mean, by the way, it's crazy. Look at every national, international kind of human rights, civil rights movement. They're not just Jews there. They're like in the front with Martin Luther King, and he, all the time, all the time, he says that's Mitzrayim, that's Egypt. It's like in our DNA. Because when you start out being abused, you can go either way. You can either, God forbid, become an abuser yourself, or you can become overly sensitive and then champion the cause. I like to think we've done the latter. Israel is being accused of the former, and it's absolutely not true. Absolutely not true. That It's a disgusting thing to say because we got the whatever knocked out of us in Germany or the Nazis before then we finally have strength in the upper hand and that's what we're doing to the Palestinians it's absolutely not the case we're in a very complicated situation and anyone who tries to paint it in that kind of way, yeah of course they were abused for so long, so now they want to lash, lash out you tell that to some uh, IDF soldier who'd rather be at home I mean um but I don't have an answer to your question, Jordan. I, I, uh, I don't have an answer. And that's one of the things we ask on the night of Tisha B'Av. We invoke the great Jeremiah Echa. How? He asked the same question you did. How is this? How could Jerusalem, which was so beautiful, be in, in, lying in ruins? How could... It's just... I don't know. And we, listen, we are a privileged generation. In the last... Two, over 2,000 years, there is no more of a privileged generation than ours to see the state of Israel, to live in the United States. Okay? But it is a reoccurring theme. Yeah? Hello. Hi. Really random, and my case is a question. Maybe it's just my negligence of not. Say loudly, sir. Okay. Is there a, going back to like the Mashiach movement, right? Is there any kind of unity? within multiple rabbinical groups, like communities, that like where the rabbis are getting together, there's a prominent rabbi now that is trying to find a commonality between the communities. Yeah, I mean, I think that's done all the time. I think, you know, within what they call the Torah community, you know, it's, it's centered in Torah and in learning and in spirituality. And there is divisiveness within it. There is this group and that group, and this one dresses like that, and no one dresses like this. And, you know, there is, like, pettiness. It exists. But I think, uh, I think the pettiness gets over... Uh, what's the word? Uh, I don't know. It gets reported on a lot more than a lot of the, you know... Uh, you know I'm like a walking modern Orthodox whatever, right? So, I don't know, we've been... Ezra and I have been praying in this very Hasidic synagogue in Muncie over the summer. I go, we go every day, we go twice a day. Um, we don't look, I don't look like anyone who's in the room. And I don't get any weird looks, and I've gotten only, um, I don't know, I, it's just been, and I would imagine that most people think that if you were to walk into the Hasidic community, you would be looked upon as some crazy, you know, outsider. Uh, I just don't think it's true. Are there people like that? Of course. And that's who the news is going to write about. But the general Joe Jew on the street is, I don't know, is there still conflict? Of course, we would have a temple <laughs> if, if there wasn't. 
and, and unfortunately, you know, there are still divisions between the denominations, you know, um, and we're still, you know, we're such a tiny people, and we've managed to uh, box ourselves into these little groups. Um, but we have to have a broader sense of achthus, of unity, of oneness. But is anyone pilgrimaging? Like Rabbi Kiva at the time was that unifying figure? I think it's every day. It's through the Torah and through the mitzvot observance. It's through just performing acts of kindness for other people. Um, I don't know. I, I saw it today at the Shiva. I, I, you see it, unfortunately, God forbid, when something goes wrong. Here's the problem. It just hit me a little. If you're not really in the community, you're not going to see a lot of the achtos of the community. And because the reporters and the media are not going to report on it, you may not even find out about it. The only way you can actually see it is if you're in it. So if you start going, you become part of a community, you'll feel the love of that community. You'll also see some of the stupid politics and, and dumb things and pettiness that exists too, which is why we don't, still don't have the temple. But I think a lot of us that are perhaps, I'm not saying you per se, but I'm saying, I, I think a lot of us that are not really like going regularly into a particular community are not going to feel that love. You know? Um, you see, that's why like, if someone's like super involved in the community, it's the hardest thing in the world. Somebody gets married, there are 500 people. People don't understand, hey, you have 500 people going to the wedding. Forget about how you afford it. That's a separate issue. But just because you're, you're so involved in the community, there's just so many people that you need to have because you're in the community. And um, I, there's, not enough, there's not enough of us living like that. But isn't the challenge of like the division, I know it obviously exists, not as much as maybe the media says it is, but isn't the the challenge with the division between sort of internally that like everyone disagrees about what the way to go about you know not just practicing but if we're talking about this particular topic of like putting out that positivity into the world to like get to the messianic age or like to get to right. the rebuilding of the temple that we disagree fundamentally like about what we should be doing to go forth. So I, I um, who are you talking about specifically? You're saying in the broader Jewish community like a reform rabbi versus an orthodox rabbi kind of thing? Sure. I, I didn't have particular... Right, because I, I think within the broader orthodox world there is not as much divisiveness as people like to think there is. In the broader orthodox world people are very much looking towards the Torah, and I'm not saying that doesn't exist in the conservative or reform communities either. It's just of a different version of it, really. They're a different, really, understanding of what Judaism is about, particularly in the reform community, Okay, which is why they reform Judaism. So they have a really a very different take on what the goal and the purpose of Torah is to begin with. And therefore, do we even need a Mashiach? I don't think they subscribe to those views at all. So obviously, there's going to be a big difference between an Orthodox Jew's vision of Tisha B'Av and a reform that may not even observe that day anymore. Conservative somewhere in the middle. So I think, yeah, there's probably a big difference there. But uh, I don't know, there's just certain... That's why Israel, you know... Yeah, there's a lot of divisiveness in Israel also, but like there's so much coming together nobody's talking about in Israel. I just think it's important for us to focus a little more on the positive because if we want to create more unity, then we have to build from, we have to build, you know, you got to build on your strength. And if we keep emphasizing the differences, and they're there, obviously, um, then that's just going to create more and more of that, that momentum. Um, but I don't know, you know, going to your question before, I don't know, is there, is there one out there, like, promoting unity? I mean, that's... Towards, like, can I say this like from someone that like came kind of in the middle? Like I practiced Sephardic customs. I was like very mixed, right? Mm -hmm. I practiced Sephardic and Ashkenazi customs. I was all and like still not. <laughs> but like when. But that's a good example. Sephardim and Ashkenazim. I don't think there's a. There used to be a little of a divide in Israel when a lot of Sephardim came. They weren't treated the way they should have been. But I don't think today there's really a divide. You think there's such a divide between? Uh, there's a cultural difference. People like being amongst their own a little more. Yeah. So you're going to have Persians hanging out with Persians and Syrians hanging out with Syrians and, and, and Polish Jews. Okay, we're not in Poland anymore, but like, you know, our bubbies and zadies from Russia, Poland, 
we have a little more. We were, you know, we were exposed to the Enlightenment. The Svartim were not. So it's just differences. That doesn't mean we're not unified. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't think, I don't think that, we're talking about where, like, there's a breakdown. We can't talk to each other. We can't, like, observe the same Torah together. We can't sit at the Shabbos table amongst each other. I guess that's more reform versus... Yeah, and I will tell you, I think it's calmed down a lot. Yeah. You know, when I, I grew up, I think it was a little more intense. I think Chabad has helped with that a lot. Like, just in my own growth, like, Maybe. you start from a place of acceptance, true acceptance. Right. Like you could walk I mean, I'll tell you, within the Orthodox world, when I grew up, it was more of a... My Zaidi was what's called Misnagid. He was, you know, Orthodox Jew, but a very um, Lithuanian, not into the Hasidic, but very Orthodox. But like almost anti the Hasidic. And he had like jokes. They were like jokes. And the Hasidic would make jokes about like his type. The Litvox, they called them. And the, you know, um, you guys know what I'm talking about a little, right? A little? I, you know, that, that is over. What's that? Right. So, like, uh, you think there's such a Svartic, Ashkenazic, like, I, I, don't, I don't think there's such a, uh, I don't mean to be poo-pooing, you know, like. Uh, I think it, unfortunately, it comes down to the world we live in. Everyone's human instinct right now is to be better than the next person. <laughs> just live in a world of competition and a world right. of wanting to be right and being validated. And, and, and that definitely and exists in the Jewish world, there's no question. Right. And it's almost, so... The further we get through history, the more access we have to each other. But with that access comes discovering differences as well. Yeah. And unfortunately, that access is used to show differences rather than accessing other people. Yeah, I mean, the, the rub... It's the nature the, of the news, too. It's also the nature of the news. The difficult for us is that, you know, we do have something we believe in called the Torah... So it's hard to just keep loving and going, yeah, that's great. We love your version of Judaism when you think it's like going up against what you think the Torah was meaning to say. That's difficult. But yet, I still believe we were, we're, we're taught to still be unified with such individuals. But back in, in the old world, you, you, you didn't have these like cross-cultural discussions or cross right, things are observance discussions. I mean, someone in Poland who was going to temple and saying the same prayers and reading the Torah was the same as the person in Argentina who was going to temple and saying the prayers and reading the Torah, which was the same. Like, there there wasn't the understanding or knowledge of the interpretation being different because we were all so siloed around the world. Now you have the ability to know That's interesting. through technology and access and just what right. we live in. Even though if you went to Rome, if you got on a flight and you went to Rome and you went to pray in the great synagogue of Rome, it would, be, it would not be so simple to follow the prayer book because they have a little of a different version. Same God, same sages who wrote the prayer book, and theirs is the oldest. They have actually the oldest version of the prayer book, the, the Roman Jewish. It's all the same, but it's interpreted in a million and one different right. ways right. that you used to not have to reconcile. Right, well, we need to figure out a way of... Uh, Staying unified. Yes. Well, I have a question. This is might be my own ignorance. I know the answer. Why did the parachuters, parachuters came and they took back, you know, the hotel? Why didn't they go for the tunnel down too? Oh my God! But then it was going. Wait, 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 wait. Were they instructed not to? No, they took the Temple Mount. Har Yadenu, they took it, and Moshe Dayan and a guy actually, one of the soldiers, went up on the Temple Mount on the Gold Mosque and put an Israeli flag. There's a video. There's a video of that. Yeah. And Moshe Dayan instructed him, he was the Minister of Defense during the Six-Day War, and he instructed him to bring it down, and they, they very quickly ceded authority. Israel has sovereignty over the Temple Mount. It's Israeli territory, technically. But they ceded authority to what's called the Waqf, which is the Muslim authority. I think it was a terrible decision. <laughs> I think it was an awful decision. It could still have been a mosque, and Muslims could, could still go there and leave it to the Jewish people. We would still let Muslims go and pray in peace. There'd be much more peace if we hadn't yes, done yes, that. Yes. Oh, I think. But that was he was he fought the Six Day War. He was a general in the army. Moshe Dan, he lost an eye. He was a great warrior for the Jewish people. That was his call. We have to respect the decision they made. 
and uh, we got all sorts of issues and problems. But it's 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 the it's that was that, that's what they decided. Oh, I didn't know the history. I was curious. If we had oh yeah, over the loudspeakers they said Har Habayit Biadenu. They went the other way. They didn't go. Some of the paratroopers, some of the Tzanchanim went the way of the Kota, which was basically a big garbage dump. It was made into a big garbage dump, um, and then, but some of them came the other way through. Like on, they were on the Temple Mount first. They were above where the Kotel is. Um, by the way, you can't really go there unless you know where you're going. Just want to make that mention that because uh, you have to be in a certain pure, purified state that none of us are in. But there are places you could go on the Temple Mount, but you can't really go into. Even though technically you could go into a mosque, tradition is not to. But you could technically do that. It's not like a church. But that that mosque is really where we believe the Temple was. And, the, and and we can't really go there today. Um, Even if we had it, right? It doesn't. It, it would literally be vacant. We can't physically go there. You know, and they they pray to the same God we do. We have much less issues, you know, philosophically with Islam than we do with Christianity. We're much closer of a religion to Islam. You know, we got other issues. Uh, any other comments or questions? Yes. Uh, then, uh, uh, that mosque has been, uh, is Rabbi Avi waiting, by the way? Oh, but is he teaching? We don't have... Rabbi Pini is. Is he, is he outside? Is he? I don't know. I just keep teaching until so, so somebody comes in. You just tell him we're done? No, no, it's fine. Oh. Wait, is it, are they still upstairs? They are, they are okay, I'm going to go up. Uh, okay.